Welcome back to another episode of Public Problems. Here again today, I'm with a number of Bush School students, and uh, you have heard from this group a while back on how to improve decision-making within public service. And uh, one report wasn't enough for them, so they have done a second one, which looks at the role technology can play and is already playing in improving decision-making within government and governing agencies. Uh, but before we move further, I would want to give the group an opportunity again to uh, introduce themselves so you'll know who the, who the voices are, and then um, I'll ask the group to start telling us about their report. Hello, my name is Harrison Dolly. Madison Motto. Paula Martinez. Nick Particolo. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for uh, sitting and chatting with me today, and thanks for your report. Um, why don't we start by having you situate this report. What were you trying to accomplish with this? And then where did you end up putting some of your focus on which types of, uh, or how technology impacts governance? So like, like you just said, the main theme of our report is uh, how technology impacts governance. And just real quick, let's kind of sort of define what we mean by technology. There's a lot of different definitions um, that you can see out there. But we as a group decided that technology is described as a collection of, of ideas, processes, inputs, and tools that improve quality of life or the performance of a task. So for example, uh, cuneiform, we could see that as a technology with the clay tablets. Mm -hmm. It allowed the Sumerians to start counting grain, so then they could start keeping records if they were having bad years or good years with crops and how much they could feed the people. You know, that vastly improved the quality of life in the Sumer civilization and they rose to the top. The stirrup changed um, the military uh, world forever by allowing different types of cavalry tactics and allowed the Mongols to almost raise an entire empire from continent to continent. Mm -hmm. So we can see that technology has really um, big impacts on our world today and it could determine how we could govern ourselves. So to lay out this report, we decided to focus on two um, really kind of um, emerging and established technologies are in today's world. We talk about smart cities, which are cities that use the um, networks and systems um, to help monitor and keep track of programs and infrastructure. And then we also talk about social media and the role it plays within governance. Um, but first, uh, we want to kind of lead into uh, how um, recent modern technology has impacted governance to kind of give an idea of just uh, what a modern impact of a technology has. And I'll let Nick take it from there. So yeah, so I wanted to identify three key pieces of new, and say new with the new meaning 19th century and recently technology, so I focused on the radio, telephone, and television as impact uh, ways, different technologies that impacted how public servants interacted with the public and how they made their decisions. So I'm not going to go into the, de in the report of the details of basically, you know, who invented the technology and stuff, I'm not going to go into that, but talk about their implications. So when it comes to the radio, the first one that I played, the first time it played a key part in public service was the 1924 election. Uh, there was at this point that the first radio station was made in 1920 in Pittsburgh, and, and that's when radios really started to become prevalent across the American households. It was described as a new tool for enlightenment of the American people that changed how politics worked. Politics was no longer the game of the elites who could understand sophisticated language and could afford to go to hearings or you know events from the politicians. Now every American, 
every American household that had a radio were, was connected. And so this changed how politicians ran campaigns, how they ran advertisements. They couldn't be sophisticated and go into super policy details. They had to kind of dumb it down so that the American people could understand and help get them connected. Um, by World War II, 90% of American households had a radio in it and usually listened to three or four hours a day. So it was clearly very prevalent in the lives of everyday Americans. Not only this, they were very trusting of the information they heard on the radio. It's not like how it is today where it's all about fake news and fact-checking what you hear. I'm sure that was done um, in the past, but it was far more accepted if you heard it on the radio. If FDR said it in a fireside chat, okay, I guess that's true. When this sort of famously played out, I think it was with uh, Orson Welles, right, who had a radio uh, show that people thought was actually a newsreel mm -hmm. and that thought that they were being attacked by aliens, yep. right? Uh, so this kind of classically lays out how people believed a lot of what was on the radio. The mm -hmm. War of the Worlds incident. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. And so again, specifically, I talked a little bit about FDR's fireside chats and how that revolutionized how people perceived their um, their interactions with their public servants. You might have a lot of people in America were just blown away that, okay, every day I turn on my radio and the president's talking to me, or whatever it might be. Going to the telephone, um, in its early inception, it really didn't have that much of an impact as far as how public relates to public service. It did allow better communication, obviously, between teams of, you know, a team of politicians and their workers. It allowed for better communication, but telephones really started becoming prevalent um, with robocalling and cell phones. And so robocalling uh, really started to gain traction in the 80s once we had computer software systems that could manage robocalling. And so it's certainly it's an issue today. There's hot button. There's it's a hot button issue as far as is it even legal. You know, no one really likes to get robocalls. And I was doing a lot of research on are they even effective. So most research points that they're very ineffective at getting people out to vote or changing people's policy ideas, especially with young adults. Um, I did find though that it is slightly effective for older and more conservative voters. But even that uh, in that article by. Uh, Clinton Stratman, which is a read, it was from 2016, they said, I mean, they said it was almost negligible about the impact that they can have, yet we're still using them. Mm -hmm. And that's a big question with a lot of research, like, what's the point of this? Specifically going to cell phones, on the other hand, cell phones are far more impactful. Uh, by 2014, said 28% of registered voters use their cell phones to get political information, whether that's you know, looking up on the internet or checking polls. So this, again, brought, much like the radio, it brought public servants a lot closer to their constituents with a president who lives on Twitter mm -hmm. and for better or for worse it brings them a lot closer to us mm -hmm. which I think in general that's kind of a good thing um, maybe not how he uses it but as far as um, <laughs> the, like I said phones really just helped connect the general public and allow politicians to get their message out earlier message out easier to bigger numbers and again changing that relationship similarly to the radio with the fireside chats I think is the primary example and then finally comes to television Talk about the prevalence of television. By 1993, 98% of American households had at least one television in them. And so, television was similar to radio and how it revolutionized the connections that public servants were able to have with the general public, but it added the whole new layer of sight. And this was a new, this level of intimacy was far greater than even at the radio, just being able to hear it. Um, a quote from Gene Wyckoff, who is a television writer and producer, and he wrote on this issue, I'm gonna read right here that I thought was really pressing. American politics in the age of television will undergo a subtle increase of incompetence in high places at crucial moments, a subtle corrosion of our government's traditional dedication to being representative and responsive to a consensus of informed public opinion. <laughs> so he's obviously taking a negative outlook on that, but um, his book and studies that he utilized and other ones talked about how television 
is now going to place prevalence on factors that really shouldn't matter. His book is called The Image Candidate. Mm. And then the example I used was the 1960 presidential election, talking about the first debate between Kennedy and Nixon. Kennedy, young, handsome, up there with makeup. Nixon coming out of the hospital, looking pale, having a 5 o'clock shadow, looking kind of disheveled. Going into that, Nixon had a six-point lead on Kennedy. After the next morning, Kennedy had a one-point lead on Nixon. And so while Nixon won, said he won the second debate and the third one was a draw, 70 million people watched that first debate. And that surely influenced 70 million people's decision when it came time to vote in the election. These were two educated, well-spoken individuals. But it was that appearance that completely shifted the favor of the election in favor for Kennedy. So similarly to the phone and radio, television brings us closer to our politicians, let us get more information, which is, I believe, the most important facet of technology as it relates to the public sector. But it also puts high value on things that we really shouldn't value and those have clear negative implications. Yeah, so it seems like there's a trend of like making information more broadly available, more quickly to disperse, while at the same time maybe highlighting some factors or some variables that we would maybe prefer that voters or the general public don't use particularly with a lot of weight in making these decisions, right? Mm -hmm. So how someone looks becomes a lot more important when they're on the TV and you see them all the time. One of the interesting uh, historical pieces that kind of lines up with technology is thinking about FDR, right? FDR had this great voice. He, he did radio well, but people from that time period, uh, they tried to essentially hide that he was in a wheelchair. Um, and you can imagine that would play out differently if he was on screens and being seen visually all the time, just as kind of one example. Um, and so, anyways, I think these technology, these technological tools have definitely changed how public servants communicate with the public, how uh, politicians communicate with the public, and um, how the public receives its general information uh, from those two sources as well. Mm -hmm. And public servants have to be aware of those implications when they're making their decisions, which was highlighted again in some of the text. Exactly. So one of the things that's uh, curiously missing, which I think we you take up in, uh, in different ways in the next section of your report, but is the role the internet plays in uh, in changing these things. So I know in your report you talk about the how some advanced kind of technological tools interact with the internet to give information to smart cities and you also talk about the role of social media. So maybe we could start with talking a little bit about um, smart cities and what those are and how we've gone from these past technological trends to what we can now do with, uh, with smart cities. So uh I'll take that. Um, you know, as, as today, 50 per, over 50% of the world's population lives in an urban area, in an urban city. And originally, the term smart city was meant to uh, describe a city that was using um, on the verge uh, computational statistics and analysis to help um, its urban expansion. This was famous in Los Angeles in the 70s when they began to use um, data analysis to kind of help them try to get rid of the urban blight problem. Uh, but now, today, a smart city is much more than that. They still use computational statistics, but however, they have an integrative uh, framework and infrastructure that helps them monitor uh, not only uh, how their infrastructure is doing, but programs and services that they provide to the people. So for example, uh, traffic cameras and uh, toll roads. You know, those traffic cameras aren't only just there to make sure that 
someone is uh, not switching out their plates, which was a famous uh, example of something that happened in Michigan, but as well, um, they help uh, determine, you know, how much uh, flow is coming through that one toll lane, you know, uh, what time, what times are the heaviest usage, um, are there, do we have a lot of speeder, uh, speeders on that uh, toll road, you know, do we need to place more cops on it? So information is being fed throughout to different departments, the Department of Transportation is getting one kind of report, you know, the department uh, that manages the highways is getting one report, and the, the police department is getting one report. So everyone's getting all this kind of data without having to send a single team out there to monitor things. And this has um, created a phenomenon known as urban shrinkage. When the geographic area around your city uh, becomes, you know, not a, not non-existent, but doesn't matter to you anymore because all your infrastructure and all your programs are connected. Um, and this is uh, something that we're seeing that is starting to take hold in a lot of cities. Uh, the and this all cannot have happened without the internet uh, creating this network of information so that when an employee receives a, a piece of information they can make a um, decision on it however I will say that the downside to that is that without an uh, without say employees or teams going out there to examine the problems you really you kind of have that disconnect between the actual experience of what you can see out there versus what a computer screen is telling you. Mm -hmm. And so um, while this integrated framework is great, you know, it means that you have you don't have to send out as many teams during the day and you could check up on things faster, there is that risk of the disconnect of um, employees not being as connected to maybe the programs or services that they're uh, supplying. So these smart cities uh, essentially are using you know Internet of Things and sensors yes, to get to have data essentially automatically collected, which uh, allows for a lot more data, a lot more analysis. But mm -hmm. it does change the relationship that the public servants have with the city in the sense that they're not as mm -hmm. they don't have to be out on the ground visiting with citizens exactly. and visiting with the clients in the same type exactly. of way. So while this data is, you know, helpful for maybe managing fit your physical infrastructure, you know, having sensors that are telling you how the the pipes and the sewer systems are doing, it, we've honest, we've honestly seen some weakness in the on the urban planning aspect. It's great for telling where a floodplain is, but without getting out there into the field, it's hard to tell the demographic disparities that are down there. You know, what and trying to galvanize a employee to take action on that when they see it versus when they just view it on a computer screen, as I said earlier. So smart cities are one way in which uh, public servants are utilizing or being utilized by um, <laughs> technology. Uh, social media is another one that maybe we utilize and it utilizes us. So tell me a little bit about the role social media plays uh, in, in governments. Yeah, so the interesting part about smart cities is that the information is going to public officials like they're the ones receiving information and then back to what nick was talking about about the radio telephone and television it's a one-way street of information going to the public mm -hmm. uh, and the great median here is social media it social media is the two-way street of communication um, and 
and it's a place for interaction as well. Um, so. So one of the differences between smart city and social media is this kind of two-way flow of information, right? Smart cities are collecting information through lots of sensors to analyze things where social media gives the citizens uh, a way to kind of share information back with the, with the city or with the government. Right, and the, the effect that that has on decision-making is that uh, city officials or government officials, <coughs> public servants, have uh, quicker access to the needs and wants of the public. Um, a great thing about social media is that um, there's different elements that go to different sites. So um, Facebook uh, is more of a relationship building, conversation, or you know, having conversations. Um, whereas maybe YouTube is more of like this is where I share like all these facts that I have. Um, and <clears throat> uh, one really convenient thing that public officials have done as of late is that um, a great example is uh, Seattle. They um, have created this social city hall where they uh, every now and then create a Facebook event of, hey, at this time, all of our officials at city hall are going to be available to you. And this is where they get people to talk to them and they say like, oh, well, I'm having trouble you know, my, my neighborhood park is really gross and we want to change that. We want our kids to feel safe. And public officials come back on that page and uh, during that live conversation Q&A session um, and say, oh, well, if you actually go here, you can uh, go to this website, fill out this form, and you can submit it online. And so they're finding ways to be more convenient for individuals because before, I mean, having to go to City Hall and having to maybe wait in a line or um, not know what department to go to um, has stopped a lot of people um, in communicating with their officials and now it's just a much faster um, avenue to use. Um, so, yeah, and another great point is that Social media create it helps officials create a brand, or it helps you know departments create a brand, um, and that's through their social presence and their self presentation. Um, so, how often are they posting, and how is that information conveyed? Are they uh, doing what they are saying they're going to do online? Like, you know. I'm gonna take action, this isn't right. You know, you see all those tweets, you know, all the time, but are those officials actually doing what they're saying? And now that uh, the public has access to those tweets, you know, the internet's forever. Um, and so, you know, one screenshot of it uh, before you delete something and it's there forever. It's captured, so, yeah. Yeah, it's captured. So both of these are, um, utilize the internet to some degree and are really both working to speed up the pace of information exchange and communication exchange. How do these tools impact some of the biases that we know humans have? One of the ideas with this report is to think about the ways in which technology 
can minimize some of the biases that humans have, can help, you know, help them have better information, help them deal with limited processing capabilities. So did, in, in your report, did you talk about um, the ways in which these technologies are impacting specific human biases and the way that uh, public servants can uh, use these tools to improve their decision making? Absolutely. So as you said, it's all about the flow of technology. And so through this, um, we analyzed four prevalent biases that we talked about in our previous report that we thought public servants should be especially aware of, those being the law of small numbers, intuitive predictions, the halo effect, and the availability bias. And so um, technology can certainly impact these biases different ways, but the general idea is more reliable information, more information, and getting the information faster is how technology can help fight them. Um, as far as the law of small numbers go, um, the policymaker falls victim to the law of small numbers. They, rest, they run the risk of making a policy um, based on inaccurate or insufficient data. This can have unintended consequences on their target population, unintended consequences on not their target population, and so it's in their best interest to have statistically deep and varied um, data. And so I talked about uh, statistical and spreadsheet software such as data, Stata or Microsoft Excel and how those allow policymakers to categorize and aggregate, you know, billions of data sets if, I mean, they're never going to need that, but if they ever were, it's available to them there. The detailed analysis, with that detailed analysis, they can make proper policy decisions, uh, and then that really fights off the problem of lost small numbers. Intuitive predictions is similarly based, intuitive predictions being, you know, using our system one and we should be using our system two to analyze decisions, and again, um, now with technology we have more versatile survey disbursement, we have stronger data analysis, and we have the ability to share more accurate information faster than ever, again, combating the similar problems with the law of small numbers. Um, I use an example in here for um, a policymaker, they could use an email survey following public servants to get uh, more consistent data when it comes to maybe a policy decision. They can use that, they can use then the ability of Stata to aggregate the data, and then they can use social media to share the findings with other, with their fellow you know, members of the House or Senate or wherever they might be. When it comes to the halo effect, I mostly talk about this when it comes to hiring or as it pertains to just interactions with other public servants. You know, um, a bad first impression can give a highly qualified individual no chance, or a great first impression can give a highly unqualified <laughs> individual a great chance. Yeah. And the halo effect is especially hard to combat. Uh, a few studies said that even when made aware of it, humans are still incredibly susceptible to it and that it's further hypothesized that awareness is likely the best we'll get as far as combating it, that we really will never be able to get around it. So this is where technology comes into play. Technology isn't going to be affected by the halo effect. They don't have impressions. They're just they're run based off data. And so obviously then that co combats is how it's, how, the, how it's programmed. And so as long as you can fight the halo effect in the programming, um, I talked about for an interview, utilizing programs to... I said, uh, give an example, to utilize programs to calculate potential employee performance as opposed to have reliance on interviews. So if we're trying to make a hiring decision, they can assign factors to different weight or different weights to different factors, talk about past experience, the interview itself, and then they could do a tested work related competence. And so then the program can run that data and then they can help um, help them find who truly might be the best employee to work with or to hire. Um, and then finally, the availability bias. Again, going back to the initial three technologies I talked about, the past ones, just the spread of information. You know, if the only way you're getting information is you're getting the newspaper once a week back in the 19th century or whatever it might be, okay, that's gonna be in your head and that's only gonna be in your head. But now if I can go pull up 
go on to my go and watch TV for three hours of news while scrolling Facebook and getting news while reading you know Politico and getting news or whatever it might be. That while that certainly can be an overflow of information, I think that helps us combat it and not just have one piece stuck in our mind and using that only when we come to our decision making. So this is really an argument about the role that technology plays in increasing information and information quality and um, the utility of being able to gather a lot more information than we would have in the past, having skills to analyze that, some statistical tools to analyze it, which will help combat some of these biases. So um, what kind of examples did you find where governments were either utilizing smart city, uh, a smart city approach or social media and ways in which this has done well or not so well. I know in your report you cover a couple of different uh, real world examples, so maybe you could tell us about those. Yeah. <laughs> so um, first we're going to talk about just like Singapore and how they are kind of becoming the first smart nation, mm -hmm. which is really impressive. Um, so we talked about a different, uh, a couple different things in our report, starting with um, this thing called Codex, where core operation development, environment, and exchange, and they use like the X exchange for Codex. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but this um, sort of allowed standardized data for all government agencies, and then um, it also allowed the public and private sectors to also utilize this information. So it allowed for more um, more transparency between all agencies and the public itself. Um, and next we have e-payments, which is kind of like, it's sort of a government-sanctioned um, Apple Pay. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, and so um, they kind of started off using this thing called Pay Now and are now beginning to utilize QR codes as a m means of facilitating digital payments, or they're kind of just trying to get rid of a real currency. Mm -hmm. um, the next thing they have is Moments for Life, which assists individuals and families with information about government programs and opportunities. Um, so it allows them to be connected with things such as like what their equivalent of like welfare would be or other government assistance programs. And also they can register their child's birth on this app, which is kind of yeah. strange. Yeah. Um, That's something that you would think a lot of Americans would just take up and do. Yeah. <laughs> And then um, the next thing is National Digital Identity, or NDI. And so what this does is, once a citizen, they can fill out one form, and that form is essentially universal for both private and public sector. Um, other forms, such as like credit card applications, life insurance, car loans. Um, and then finally, kind of Harrison's talking about smart cities utilizing um, data for like public transport and stuff like that and infrastructure they have smart urban mobility and it's um used in effort to enhance the comfort ease and accessibility of public transport um they talk a lot about people who are elderly and people with small children and disabilities and they have hands-free ticketing which allows hands off like entrance and exit so they don't need to pull out like a card to like get on the bus they kind of just are able to get on and using they didn't really talk about what exactly they use. They kind of just talked about um, the fact that they have it. Mm -hmm. And that is mainly for the elderly, disabled, and people with small children. And then they have improved commuting experience for individual users. So they have their card. And um, this card kind of collects information of the hotspots for the buses. So that way they can more effectively like run bus systems. And then... There was another. 
Oh, and then um, autonomous shuttles. So basically, buses that drive themselves in order to improve efficiency, making sure things are on time, in order to also for safety. So they're less likely to get in crashes if they more autonomous vehicles become in use. And then next, we talked about San Francisco and Bitcoin. And currently, San Francisco is the biggest um, leader in the United States for in-person use of Bitcoin. There are currently 76 active Bitcoin ATMs in San Francisco in which um, users can buy and sell Bitcoin in exchange for cash, or they could buy it with cash or credit. <laughs> and then um, Bitcoin accepting companies in San Francisco include like, they had Starbucks that um, took Bitcoin and then dental offices and pet stores. They had like some, honestly, some weird companies that took Bitcoin in San Francisco. Um, and finally, talking about social media, I kind of did four different examples in kind of relation to what um, Paolo was talking about. And so the first one was the Arab Spring. And so for those who don't know, Arab Spring was a series of anti-government protests and uprisings and rebellions during, within the Middle East during 2010. And um, this is kind of been famously used for how social media can be utilized in like sort of government, like kind of um, protests and stuff like that. So that's basically what they did is they, um, the protesters relied heavily on social media to organize protests to spread information about what their government was doing. And on the government side, the governments either chose to use the social media as a tool to push their side of the story and kind of get them involved in engaging with their process and try and get them on their side, or the government decided to ban all access to the social media. Um, and then social media and accountability. So because um, social media is so ingrained in like our everyday lives, um, it's kind of shaped how we think public servants should act. And so we kind of see this with, for example, like Donald Trump, we don't think a president should be acting like that on social media. Um, so we kind of get to be able to call him out on this and talk directly about how he's using social media wrong, stuff like that. And so, and then also seeing in their decisions, whenever we see a public official make a decision that we don't necessarily like, we can be like, hey, this person did this and kind of make it more publicly known as if, um, as opposed to before the use of social media where people could make these decisions and it go unnoticed. Mm -hmm. um, and then we talked about Brexit in our last um, podcast, but <laughs> yeah. and we also talked about how social media influenced Brexit and how it kind of influenced elections and votes in general and how basically there's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy of a lot of people didn't want to leave, but then the Leave campaign kind of took on social media and like really ramped up like the idea that like oh everybody wants this and then so in turn kind of made people be like oh I guess other people want this so I guess I'll vote for it too and then finally um, as far as public servant branding we have the Obama campaign in 2008 which was kind of a really big um, example of social media being used in elections for the first time and so during the 2008 election he created uh, accounts on numerous social media websites such as Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, so there's one called like Dig. There's like a bunch of like really obscure ones. <laughs> and um, he was like the first to really embrace the power of social media in his branding and kind of be able to like make himself more like personable to people and like and with that he was able to get both financial backing from supporters through the use of social media so people would donate to him. Um, from his website and stuff like that, and also it um, gained a lot of free advertising for him, and 
because people would create their own content and spread their message about him and kind of going back to again influencing elections was kind of permeated everywhere mm-hmm. so yeah yeah those are some really fun examples i knew a little bit of the stuff going on in singapore but it's amazing from a technology and governance standpoint and provision of services how far ahead they are mm-hmm. uh, on lots of dimensions um, and the way that social media in particular is playing out in government is something I'm sure you could write a, several people have whole books on. Um, so those are some really nice uh, touch, touch points. So uh, bring this all together for me. How does, uh, what role is, uh, is technology playing in government? Uh, what ways in which it can be used better? What, what did you kind of conclude with in this report? As it pertains to decision making, it, um, as Madison talks, it makes, uh, technology makes, um, makes public servants have to be more accountable for their decisions because of this huge influx of information, whether it's one-way stream from public servants to the citizens, citizens to public servants, or back and forth, just that, that rapid spread of communication, it just, I mean, it's kind of a ge- generic term, but it really opens the eyes as far <laughs> as how much we see of the public sector and like what public servants do. And so while there are people in the public sector who think that's a bad thing, um, it's for the best that the public knows what the government's doing, how politicians, how public servants make their decisions, how they come up with their policy moves and how they choose to interact with their constituents. And so it's again, it's this overall, this flow of technology, this flow of information facilitated by emerging technologies from the 19th, 20th and 21st century that is making it easier for citizens to be connected to their public servants. Very good. And then as well, um, it's just kind of going to show the amount of information that uh, public servants, whether elected or simple um, employees, are uh, receiving. And that now that their decisions are no longer um, uh, being made by what they see, is by about what um, information they are gathering from their smart technologies and as well as from citizens as Nick just said. So I think this is uh, I think the group hits the nail right on the head thinking about the role technology plays in spreading information and improving communication. I do worry uh, in particular with the social media piece of this the the role of misinformation right and we mentioned maybe mm-hmm. uh, overcrowding of information and I think in the marketplace of ideas this is going to be a real problem because not only do we have people competing and debating on actual facts and information that you can gather from social media, there's a lot going on arguing and debating about things that are clearly not factual, uh, deliberately so. Um, So it will be interesting to see how this kind of battle for information plays out, not only between the information that public officials push out, but also in this back and forth to a discussion. If you've ever read, you know, the comments on a YouTube video mm-hmm. or on a Facebook news article post, uh, you get a little bit of a flavor of how some of these conversations can go, right? Excellent. Uh, very well done. Thanks for uh, chatting with me, and um, you made it. You finished the whole project. You finished both of them. Well done. Thank you, team. Thank you. Thank you.